And uh, I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and go right back to the passage that Charlene read for us earlier, Matthew chapter 16. Throughout the uh, Lenten season, I have been doing a lot of uh, personal reflection on the concept of listening. What does it truly mean to listen to God? How do I, how do I discern between God's voice and my emotions? And uh, part of that journey has taken me to think, too, about the idea of, of leadership. You know, it's interesting, when you follow, when you're in a position to follow someone else's leadership, you want to make sure you know that person you've chosen to follow. Ideally, you want a person who is a person of integrity. You want a person, that person to have a clear sense of direction for where the team is going. Uh, you want them to have an appreciation for each member of the team, regardless of the role they play. You want them to be appropriately transparent. You want to know what they're thinking. The fact is, no human being leads perfectly. I once read this about leaders in business. Uh, somebody said, the best leaders are the leaders that when the company has a success, they look out across the company and they say, we have got a great team here. This success is due to everybody, from the frontline workers to the senior level managers. We pulled together and we did this. But when the company has a failure, when there was a miscue, that leader looks out and says, this is on me. I, I failed to see the obstacles. I failed to see where we were going. I take the responsibility. Not all leaders are good leaders. Uh, and sometimes you find yourself in a position of following someone who's leading you that maybe you didn't have the choice to follow them and they're focused on their own success. I was reflecting on that thought this morning a little bit earlier and the Holy Spirit brought this to my mind. One hears and obeys a superior they don't trust for fear of reprisal. One listens to and willingly follows a superior they trust for joy of succeeding together. Last week we looked at uh, the team that Jesus assembled. And, and we looked specifically at one member of the team. Bill just mentioned it a minute ago. We looked at Judas. And, and in looking at Judas and, and, and actually kind of contemplating the question of why Jesus chose Judas, we learned a lot more about Jesus than we did Judas. Jesus, in the face of one who was ultimately against him, served him, taught him, repeatedly showed him grace, repeatedly invited him into relationship. And it's interesting, repeatedly the Gospels are specific in different times where Jesus would look at his followers and simply say, follow me. And that's not just a call to the twelve. That's not just to a larger, it's not just to the larger group of disciples. Any one of us 
who have believed what we just celebrated, who have believed that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, any one of us are called to follow Jesus. And it's not just a one and done. It's a lifelong reality. This morning, we're going to gain in that understanding as we look at these brief conversations that Jesus and his disciples had, especially with a focus on Peter. And we're going to see Jesus drawing his disciples into a deeper knowledge of who he is and a deeper knowledge of his mission. And today's message is very simply, it's, today's message is for all of us who follow. So we begin here in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Matthew tells us in verse 13 that Jesus had come to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, so what, what we have happening here is Jesus has moved out of Galilee. He's moved kind of a little bit to the, to the north and uh, slightly to the east in this region of Caesarea Philippi. So he's, he's kind of away from the, the, the noise of the crowds of Galilee. He's a little bit separate from the religious leaders, and he asked them probably, and what I believe in my mind is one of the most crucial questions we can ask and answer, and that is Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say I am? But before he gets there, he sets them up. It says here, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, like I said, Jesus is away from Galilee. He wants to know, what, what's the buzz out there? What are people saying? And so he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, by the way, that could be a potential. I'm gonna, it, it's not going to be because I'm going to answer it. But maybe next Sunday you hear me say something like Son of Man, and you go, okay, where does that come from? That would be a good first Sunday question. See, where, where does the Son of Man come from? I'll answer it real quick. Jesus uses the term Son of Man to, to refer to himself more, more often than any other phrase. The, the term Son of Man, you, you find it in Ezekiel, but you also find it in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says in this vision that he saw, he saw one like a son of man coming down who was given authority by the Ancient of Days, Daniel's reference to God. And so it's a clear indication that this one, like a son of man, is given all the authority of God here on earth. It's a messianic statement. And when Jesus says son of man, he's referencing Daniel's prophecy and the fact that he's the son of man. He's the one given all the authority from the ancient of days here on earth. It is clearly an indication of Messiah. Now, it was a term that was known in that time frame, but it was not widely used. What you'll notice as you go through the Gospels is Jesus avoided using the word Messiah because that word had developed military overtones. The Messiah is going to come in power and overthrow Rome, and we're going to be back to our former glory. He also chose not to use the term son of David, although he was a son of David, because that term had come to have political overtones. Now, the responses of the people, as the disciples reported, 
showed that they were still longing for this Messiah, this Deliverer. Notice what they said, verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There were theories out there about who this one was. Who is this guy who kind of burst onto the scene, who didn't go through all of our typical rabbinic teaching, who didn't go to all the right schools, who didn't study under a rabbi, and yet he comes along and he teaches with authority, and he does all of these miracles. Who is this guy? And so the theories were out there. You know, some of them said that he was maybe, I'll kind of take it in reverse order, he was one of the prophets. You see, Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy 18, 15, there is going to come another prophet like me. They were looking for someone who could lead the way Moses did and do the things Moses did. And when Jesus feeds 5,000 at one point and 4,000 at another, they're going, oh, Moses provided manna, maybe. Uh, There were some that said, well, maybe he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. There was, uh, the the Bible had pointed to sources outside of the Bible and what we call extra biblical sources, the, the historical books, especially those written during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. They had looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah as possibly returning. Some said maybe he's like John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist was Elijah-like. His clothes were similar to what was described as Elijah. And in Malachi 4-5, we read that before the day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah would come. So maybe this is it. Even Herod Antipas in Matthew 14, verse 2, thinks that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. He had had John the Baptist killed. He had had him beheaded. And he's thinking, oh no, maybe he came back to haunt me. Maybe this is him coming back. The bottom line is everybody was looking for somebody. Someone to make a difference. Someone to return the nation to its former glory. And they all had their ideas of what it would look like. You know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Fast forward 200 years, or 2,000 years even. People are still expressing their opinions about Jesus. Some say he was a good teacher. Others say he was a revolutionary. Some see him merely as a martyr for a cause. Some say, well, he's kind of a myth. We we really don't know if he existed or not. The real point is, what everyone else says is not the point. Who do you say I am, Jesus said. You see, if we're going to follow Jesus, it's important to know who you are following. That's a very significant thing. How do you answer that question today? Who do you say Jesus is? Because how you and I answer that question is vital. And and what I find so intriguing in this part of Matthew 16 
is Jesus doesn't just tell them his identity. He brings them to a point of thinking about it for themselves. Here's what all the other people are saying. Who do you say I am? Why are you following me? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, now Peter, by the way, we give him a hard time because he's always speaking up, but part of that is because Peter was the de facto leader of the group. Most likely he was the oldest member of the group. We know for a fact that Peter was married because Jesus heals his mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1 and 2. And I can just, you can trust me on this, you don't take on a mother-in-law just willy-nilly. You always take a mother-in-law when you get married. Uh, you know, there aren't guys out there going, well, she's my mother-in-law. You're not married. No, you're, when you're married, then you have a mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. She lived in their house, which was very traditional. So Peter speaks up. He steps up to the plate. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is a huge statement. Jesus hadn't used the word Messiah about himself, but Peter does. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the deliverer. You are the Son of the living God. Peter steps up to the plate and he swats that question completely out of the park. There is no doubt that he had hit a Christological home run. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one promised by the prophets. You're the son of the living God. You're God in the flesh. That's exactly what he's saying there. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. And he accepted those terms. Son of the living God harkens back to John chapter 1. John will say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of one begotten by God, full of grace and truth. Peter crushes it here. And the implications of this confession for you and me are huge. Because if you and I say, yep, I agree with Peter, then you are saying Jesus is God the Son. And we're going to see in a minute that that agreement means that we also agree that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, and that we understand that in agreeing with that and accepting that, our lives are no longer our own because we submit them to him. We follow his leadership. We better know who we are following. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, Jesus honors Peter's statement. Look at these words. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter, what you have just stated is divine revelation. You are listening to God. You are listening to the Father. This is divine revelation. You are saying something that is probably deeper than you can fully imagine. 
And then he goes on. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He is not ready yet to reveal to the world who he is. They're not ready to handle it. But we look at these words to Peter, and this statement that he makes to Peter has often troubled a lot of people. In fact, for years it's been somewhat controversial, but it doesn't have to. I want to take a minute, because if we're going to know who we're following, we've got to know what he's saying, and I want to make sense of Jesus' reply to Peter. I will just tell you, I grew up for a long, long time thinking that Jesus was saying two different things. You're Peter, but upon this confession, because we can't make Peter the rock, he can't be the rock, it's got to be the confession. And sometimes scholars will play with the Greek and the Aramaic and say this and that. You don't have to know Greek and Aramaic to follow the sentence structure. Peter's the subject of this sentence. He's saying, you're Peter, and Peter, you're going to be a key player in the establishment of the new work that God's going to do. You're Peter, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. I'll, I'll, let's just, let me side note. I understand what people are saying when they say, how's that church, how's your church doing? Well, it's, it's not my church. It's a local assembly that's part of a larger body of the, called the universal church. It's God's church. But I understand what they're saying. I pastor the church. But we had a bunch of kids once here from a project that were at the basketball, and they wanted to know if I was the owner of the church because I had the keys. Keys are going to become important. We'll talk about them in a minute. Do you own this church? Eh, if I did, no, I don't. Uh, you know, and, and so what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're going to be a key player in the establishment of the new work of, that God's going to do. Peter says, I, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, but Peter, you're going to be key in that. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, the work I'm doing is built on the foundation of other apostles. You consider how important Peter is as we look forward in Scripture. It was Peter that met personally with Jesus after the resurrection in Luke 24, 34. I think that was where Peter confessed his sin of betrayal and was ultimately forgiven. It was Peter in John chapter 21 that is called back into leadership and called back into fellowship and called to lead God's people, the disciples. It was Peter, who preached the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 and brought about the, 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 the beginning of the church, of the church age. Peter is constantly seen as the leader of the new movement when he and John in Acts 4 go into the temple to pray and they heal a man that's there lame and they get hauled before the Sanhedrin. It's Peter that speaks up. Jesus built the church builds the church. Peter was foundational in that process. Peter 
upon this rock, upon you, upon who you are, upon who I'm making you to be, you're going to be a key player in this church. All that Peter represents in that moment of his bold confession of Jesus is, in my view, the rock. The idea that Peter is told, he said, I'm given the keys of the kingdom. Those reflect what Peter did. Keys open doors. You have a key to your house, or hopefully several. Or maybe it's on your phone because you have a smart home. But you have a key. That key is yours. It opens doors. If somebody's going to house sit for you, you give them a key to the house. For that period of time, they have the authority in your house. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Peter, you need to open doors. Peter, on that sermon at Pentecost, opened the door for the Jews to come and to see who Christ was and to have faith in him. And thousands were came into repentance. Thousands were baptized. Thousands accepted Christ. Later on in Acts, Peter goes to Samaria. Samaria is where those people were that the Jews said, you are outcasts. And yet Peter opened the door for the Samaritans to come into faith with Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision he has this vision of all this food that comes down and, 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 the, and the voice in the vision says, I want you to get up and eat. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 I'm not eating any of that. There's bacon in that food and I don't eat bacon, it's pork. And God says wonderful words to a man who smokes ribs. Don't call anything I've made unclean, thank you. Don't call, you know, Peter, and, and it was a metaphor Peter, I want you to go to a Gentile, to someone that your culture and your background has called unclean. And I want you to listen to them and to share the gospel with them, to share the news of the kingdom. So Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and he does the unthinkable. He steps across the threshold into his house. A Jew never entered the house of a Gentile, but Jesus, the, the voice from God said, Peter, don't call Gentiles unclean anymore. Open the door with the keys of the kingdom so they can enter in and have relationship with me through Jesus Christ. The door is now open. Peter led the charge. Peter was foundational. Peter, you're going to be a foundational player, a rock, if you will, in building this new church. But here's something interesting as you read the, God, the book of Acts. After Acts chapter 15, Peter seems to fade out of the written record. And the apostle Paul takes over and continues to be the builder on the foundation that Peter and the other apostles laid. One scholar put it this way, the doors to the kingdom now stand open throughout the ages so the keys are no longer needed. Peter's given the authority also to bind and loosen. In rabbinical uh, teaching, this phrase meant the authority to determine what was accepted and what was forbidden. It's not that Peter had some kind of complete authority to take the place of Jesus on earth as God's sole divine representative. Only God forgives sin. 
But what Peter and the other apostles were granted is the authority to declare God's predetermined terms under which sin could be forgiven. Jesus is referring to Peter. He's the rock who would lead the new church, who would be foundational in its development. And when that foundation was established, he quietly faded into the background. God uses each of us to the degree of our willingness and our giftedness. Now, Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do. You're following me. This is what I'm going to do. But the next segment, segment he says, make sure you fully buy into the mission. You know, Peter goes from hero to villain in less than 10 verses. You know, he does. Uh, his identify, you know, now that his identity is solidified in, in their minds, Jesus begins to tell the, the disciples the reality of his mission. Here's who I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God. Now, here's my mission. And I need you to buy into the mission because it involves you. Keep in mind, these guys are all about their idea of the kingdom. We just heard it earlier. They're there at the Last Supper, and they're saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? That isn't necessarily who's going to be first. It's kind of like, who gets to, who gets to lead this thing? Who, who gets to run the show? It, it, it's kind of like if you have several kids and one goes to college, it's like, can I get the room? You know, it's, it's kind of that. I want Jesus' room. I want to, I want to lead. And, and they, they saw the kingdom as getting rid of Rome. And, and getting rid of Roman rule. Restoring Israel to those glory days. So imagine their shock when Jesus starts talking about his suffering and death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised to life. You know, they are, no. How can you be the Messiah and then go allow yourself to be killed? Messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs are God. They don't get killed. They're eternal. How are you going to do this? Why are you going to do this? And it's interesting. And, and if you look at all of the instances where Jesus talks about his death, he always talks about being raised again on the third day, and they kind of miss that point. Peter's the spokesman. So he speaks up again. I mean, how can, how can Jesus lead anyone if he's dead? How can he forgive sins if he's dead? So Peter, in essence, walks up to Jesus and said, this is crazy talk. He says, never, Lord. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter thinks he's building Jesus up. He thinks he's encouraging Jesus. He thinks he's kind of saying, no, you need to, you need to kind of focus here. You know, okay, it's my time to coach you up. You're the Messiah. You need to focus here. This is not going to happen to you. What Peter doesn't realize, and what sometimes you and I don't realize, is he is unwittingly playing into the hands of Satan. Satan's work starting at the beginning was to try to derail God's plan. In, in uh, Matthew, he, 
has the whole situation where Herod sends in soldiers to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. But God gets Jesus out with Joseph and Mary going to Egypt. You know, and, and then Jesus is baptized. What Satan do? All of his temptations are ways to bypass the cross and get the glory without the cross. And here it is again. Jesus, no, bypass this. You're the, you, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus simply turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Isn't that interesting? You're Peter. You're the rock. You're a stumbling block. We all ought to be able to identify with Peter. Because there are times when, you know, we are just, we, we nail it. We are just, we got this thing. And next thing you know, we're flat on our face in failure. We have to be very careful. I, I, I bet it got pretty lonely at that moment for Peter. I can imagine the rest of the disciples going, I, yeah, that was him. I, I, I wasn't thinking that at all. Peter, what, Peter, what are you thinking? You know, I, I just, man, it got a little lonely. At one moment, Peter is riding on their shoulders. Peter, Peter, <laughs> I'm not touching you, dude. Uh, you know, it had to be, it, wow, we need to be very careful. Even as we seek to give advice and direction to a friend, we lead with prayer, not with our opinion, not with our own logic or experience. The temptations for Jesus to bypass the cross were more than just in Matthew 4. They were here. They were later on when, when he fed the 5,000. They wanted to take him and make him a king by force. They were, it was his own knowledge in Matthew 26 where he says, I could call 12 legions of angels to rescue me. And now his closest friend is telling him, yeah, this isn't going to happen to you. This is silly. Jesus will not be deterred because he's on a mission. And the mission was not about himself. It was about being obedient to God for the sake of all humanity. And so he said, you need to buy into my mission. And my mission is to go to Jerusalem to be uh, arrested to suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the, the teachers of the law. It's going to be awful, guys. It's going to be as bad as you can imagine and then a little bit worse. And you need to buy into that mission because there is victory on the other side because I am going to be raised again on the third day and you need to buy into that. We're going to go through the battle to get to great victory. Buy into the mission. And he calls you and me to do the same. And in fact, he, he, he antes up the mission a little bit and makes sure that we understand and accept our responsibility. Jesus then turned to his disciples, you know, the guys that are standing over there not wanting to talk to Peter. He gets them all together. And he says this. You want to be on the team? You want to be one of my disciples? You want to follow me? Here's what it takes. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in, the Father, in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to to what they have done. This is not just a challenge to the 12. 
a challenge to all of us. It's for everybody who says, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Deny yourself and take up your cross. To deny yourself means to seriously put all of your desires aside. It it, it means to literally, as it were, die to yourself. You see, only a condemned person, a person condemned to death, carried their own cross in the first century. Now, in Jesus' situation, as he fell, they they drafted someone, but initially Jesus was carrying his own cross. You knew that somebody carrying their own cross was going to their death. And Jesus is saying, you need to put yourself, as it were, on the back shelf. There's this video that's out there, a lot of athletes do it, it's called I Am Second. And it's the whole idea that Christ is first, I am second. That's, That's what Jesus is saying. You want to follow him, you need to deny yourself. And sometimes you don't understand how that will look. I've told you a little bit of my story. I was thinking about it the other day. Um, I I really thought I was headed toward the media. Radio, television, but I had a face that was made for radio, so I thought maybe it better be radio. Radio. And, and, you know, it's interesting, when I was finishing up college and I knew that we were getting married and I knew we were going to be moving to Indiana and I was going to start seminary because God had called me into the pastor, but I still wanted to figure out how to kind of do both. I sent a demo tape to WRSW in War, Warsaw, Indiana, and I got a reply back saying, you know, we had one position open and we had to fill it with someone else. We are keeping your tape on file. A couple of years later, I got a call. Hey, Scott. Would you want to be part of the broadcast team for the local high school football team? We're on every Friday night. Now, at the time, I was actually teaching some broadcasting classes, so Charlene and I thought, you know, it would be good to, to kind of bring that experience to the classroom. So I said yes. I became part of the team. Friday nights, Bill Hayes and Scott Howington bring you Warsaw Tiger football. And uh, I, I would go to the station on Friday afternoon and pick up all the sound equipment. And I would go out to the high school and sit down with one of the coaches. I would do an interview. Then we would go to the game and we would start with Tiger warm-up. Uh, and that was about a half hour of talking about the game. I, I was reading newspapers. I was scouting players. And, and then we would do the game. And it was live radio, so there were all the mistakes you could make in live radio. One day I turned to Bill and said, well, Bill, it looks like they're ready for the toy costs. He looked at me and said, what? I said, the toy costs. He said, you mean the coin toss? I said, well, that too. You know, we went on and we're laughing. And then we would do Tiger wrap-up. And, and if it was an away game, sometimes I would leave the house at 3 on a Friday afternoon. I wouldn't get home till midnight. But I thought, you know, this could be the start of something big. I, 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 now, here's the deal. You can look at me and tell that I played one year of football in eighth grade. I was the fifth string quarterback. That means four guys had to get hurt before I could even get into a game. Now, when it came to defense, I played defensive backfield. I was fourth string defense. That means three guys had to get hurt. In one game, 
on a blitz on defense, I sacked the quarterback and I recovered the fumble. It was a scrimmage against the second team. So I haven't played, I mean, I like football, I know football, but that's the beauty of radio. All you get is my voice. So I was the analyst. I learned things like, hey, they strung that sweep out to the sideline and dropped him for a loss. And they're committed to the run. You know, one of my kids in my youth group was actually on the team. Hey, there, here comes Dave coming in. He's a 200-pound guard, da-da-da. You know, I, I was all into it. I made $10 a game. I made 17 cents a mile. The night we played Kokomo in Kokomo, Indiana, which was a 122-mile round trip, 66 there, 132, 66 there, 66 back, I made more money in mileage than I did for the game. We calculated that I made 30 cents a game, uh, 30 cents an hour. When the season was over, I got a phone call from the manager. Scott, we really like what you did. Would you want to do basketball? Now, I know basketball. I played basketball. What's that entail? Well, it's two nights a week, but the team looks good this year. They could go to state. You could go all the way to state. I had to deny myself. See, I wasn't called to do sports casting. Oh, I throw it up in the face of my son and my son's-in-law all the time. We'll say something. Hey, remember, I'm a sportscaster. I'm a former sportscaster. I enjoyed every minute of it. But it wasn't what God had called me to. And as I thought about my wife at home on Friday nights, or actually Friday afternoons from 3 till sometimes midnight, I realize I don't think this is the kind of price I want to pay. Now, that's a simple thing, but it's a reminder. If you're going to follow Jesus, he comes first. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. He says, what good would it be if someone to gain the whole world? What good, what good would it do for you if I would have gone on to big-time broadcasting and maybe be at the NCAAs at the United Center today calling the game for my Kansas Jayhawks in the Midwest final? That would be awesome. It wouldn't do you any good. It may not have done my family any good. Oh, I might gain the world. I might know people. But what would it have done for my soul? What good would do gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The, the soul, the core of who I am, there's nothing I can give in exchange for that. But one day the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels and he's going to reward each person according to what they've done. You think you've made sacrifices now? You think you've kind of been second now? God's going to say, look, and you don't know the results. You might not know how you've impacted somebody's life. God's going to one day say, look what you did. Look how, look how my kingdom advanced because you said no to this and yes to me. 
See, if I try to hang on to my desires, my plans, my will then by nature will be something, something has to give. If I hang on to what I want, something gives, and usually what I forfeit is God and his will. And when I do that, when I do what I want to do because I want to do it, because it makes me feel good, at best I'm living in disobedience. Following Jesus is a lifelong endeavor. And sometimes that thing, that thing that you just always wanted to do in his grace, he goes, yeah, I'm going to let you do that. You know, don't think that, oh, I'm in business. I had to go into ministry. No, we need Christian businessmen. We need Christian businesswomen. We need Christian educators. We need Christian software developers. We need, we need people in every endeavor of life to live Jesus there. When we come to faith in Christ, it's the starting line. It's the beginning point of surrender. You see, if we're working so hard to make life work on our terms, we will end up giving up what we hope we to accomplish. Because when I surrender and give my life to God, it's following that leader who I trust, listening to that leader I trust, and together sharing in the joy of success. We celebrated a birth in our church this past week. We celebrated a birth in our family this past week. You know, uh, when each of our kids were born, when each of us were born, we brought nothing. We brought nothing with us, nothing into this life. We're, the whole metaphor of birth is that infant that can't do anything to take care of his or herself. We do everything for that child. We brought nothing into life. So in fact, we really don't have anything to give in exchange for our soul. Yet Jesus, who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, gave his life in exchange for our empty, sinful lives. So the very least we can do is give him ourselves. I love the, the line in the hymn, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Who are you following today? Have you bought into the mission? Do you understand and accept your responsibility? Is there anything you're holding back from Jesus today? It's more than just a cliche. It's a divine expectation. God accepts nothing less from us than our all, for that's what he gave us in Jesus. This morning, make sure you know Jesus. Then ask Jesus to help you to be on mission with him. And then be willing to follow what he puts before you. And know this, the path God has for you will be as unique as you are. The path God has for you will fit how God has already wired you and made you to be. And I will tell you, the path God has for you will be as 
challenging as it is rewarding. And you will know deep down in the core of your soul that you're living in obedience. Oh, Peter, Peter made that statement. He hit the, the question out of the ballpark. And Peter went on to follow Christ. And he sacrificed a lot. And tradition says that he was crucified just like Jesus. But he said, I, I am not worthy to die like my Christ, my Lord. And tradition says he was crucified upside down, a horrendous death. But Peter was also the one that said to those who lead, lead because you're willing, not because you must. Lead not for gain, but to serve the chief shepherd. Peter learned his lesson. And he lived a life, yes, of struggle, but a life of joy in serving Christ. Who do you follow? Have you bought into the mission? Do you know your responsibility? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for just for these words and examples from your word that, that teach us, that remind us of who we are, of who we follow. Lord, speak to our hearts. Show us where you want us to change to be more like you. And may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.